Again, I just want to again uh, remind you, next Sunday, Thanksgiving, it kind of snuck up on me, which is why it didn't make the bulletin. That was my oversight. Next Sunday is Thanksgiving. No Sunday school. It starts at 10 o'clock. And I really want to encourage you. We're going to have an opportunity to have uh, an open mic to share something that's on your heart you're thankful for. And, and as Vern said, uh, we're going to have a table at the front, so we're going to have an opportunity that if you want to bring up an object or a photo of something that represents uh, something you're thankful for, you can bring it to the front. You don't have to say anything, but if you would like to add something to that to say what it is that you that uh, are thankful for, we're going to provide that for you uh, next Sunday. And, uh, and then also um, the following Saturday, just to highlight again that we're going to be having our Thanksgiving supper. And so, uh, yeah, just want to remind you of all of those things. Now this morning, uh, as uh, we're continuing, uh, as we have throughout the year, with our Hot Button Issues sermon series, this is one that, uh, that I've been working up to for quite some time, and so this Sunday we've arrived at part seven, what God says about homosexuality. And so I'd invite you, as we prepare to enter into uh, this text and this word, I would ask God's blessing on it. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word provides us with the perfect plan uh, for life. And that, Lord, your word, as we read it, we were reminded this morning that you don't always exclusively hold up the good examples of this is the way to do things, but your word is full of many, many cautionary tales of where people did things the wrong way, entirely the wrong way, and what happened as a result. And Lord, as we read in Genesis 19, uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and everything that was involved with it, you left that there for us for all time as a warning and, and as a reminder that we need to follow your way and your plan in all spheres of life and that to continue to rebel and defy against your way and your will is to head down the road towards destruction. And so, Father, we pray that as we enter this, this challenging text, I ask that you would simply give me the boldness to speak clearly and that you would work in us uh, what you will, Lord, as we live in these challenging times. And so we ask your blessing on your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, this morning, I will readily admit to you that preparing for this message has been extremely daunting and challenging. And in fact, it's been well over a year in the making. And for obvious reasons, it is a delicate issue and not a comfortable one to talk about, especially in church. However, I feel more strongly than ever, and I've always felt this way, but I I feel it even more strongly, that as Christians, we should not be educated on this issue by the liberal news media or by Hollywood or our public education system, or popular culture. We need to be educated on this all-important issue of God's design for marriage and sexuality from God, the creator and designer of it, and from his word. And so my aim in doing so is that you will hopefully leave here this morning a little bit more clear in your own beliefs and hopefully better equipped on how to respond well to it in the light of God's word. Now, the first time I spoke directly on this issue was way back, and I say that now a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it feels way back to me, in 2006, 12 years ago. And in 2006, I preached a sermon entitled exactly what I've entitled it this morning, What God Says About Homosexuality. 
Now, that was during a special time in my life when I was intern here. I was finishing my, my degree at, at college, and I was being mentored in that period by Pastor Harms. And I recall clearly how every week he would come to my office, we'd have our visit, and that week came to the office, he sat down, and inevitably in the conversation, he asked me the question, so what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I just flat out replied, homosexuality. His eyebrows shot up, his eyes got big. He said, hmm, interesting. Then he asked me, do you... Do you think it's necessary to focus on that issue specifically and not just sexual sins in general? And that led into a great conversation where I shared with him how I saw the cultural landscape around us changing and I felt like this one issue was leading the charge and it needed to be dressed, addressed directly for that reason. And I remember him saying in the course of the conversation with a very heavy heart, When I was a young pastor like you, I never could have imagined that our nation would be where it is today. He could not fathom, having been in my shoes in his late or early 20s as a young preacher, even broaching this subject, because it was so far removed from the cultural landscape of of his day. And I'm sure of you that are sitting here today of his generation or of the older generation beneath his, I'm sure all of you will on some level identify with his words. Because 50 years ago, this issue seemed unimaginable, especially to be dealing with it in the church. But here we are. And in that sermon back in 2006, I stood right up here and I said this, quote, I'm quoting myself. Now we can easily say, This issue hasn't affected our church, so why can't we just let sleeping dogs lie? But even if this issue has not yet directly affected our church, I think we would be extremely naive to think that it never will. Which is why, now, more than ever, we need to know what we believe, how we will respond, and why. And so here we are today in 2018, 12 years later. And yes, it has now affected us both directly and indirectly, and it's safe to say that it's still not going away anytime soon. Because keep in mind that that was back in 2006. And now think in how the last 12 years, how much further the LGBTQ, add the extra letters on, agenda has progressed over that time span. So my question is, What will we, and more importantly, for me at least, more importantly, what will our children and our grandchildren be facing in another 12 years from now? For today, we see all around us, not only has the LGBT lifestyle been normalized, they are being actively promoted in our public school sex education curriculum. They are being promoted actively through media and entertainment. And yes, our own government is not only actively promoting it, but passing laws and legislation to deprive people who believe otherwise from even having the freedom to voice opposition or simply to state what God's word says on this issue. And so just to give you an example, a current example of what I'm talking about. Some of you, if you pay attention to the news, may have heard of Bill Whatcott. 
Bill Whatcott is a Christian bus driver from Toronto who was recently arrested for having broken Canada's new hate speech law. The charge against him is, quote, the willful promotion of hatred against an identifiable group, namely the gay community. His crime? Back in 2016, he handed out pamphlets which opposed homosexuality at a gay pride parade. According to the Federalist, the pamphlet stated homosexuality is associated with sexually transmitted diseases, which the U.S. Centers of Disease Control says is true. The pamphlets noted that Toronto's former deputy education minister, who pled guilty to making and distributing child pornography in 2015, had a hand in designing Ontario's perverted sex education curriculum. And government documents show he at very least had a hand in designing and overseeing the curriculum, which has been hotly contested, if you're not aware of that, in Ontario. The pamphlet also included Christian statements indicating that unrepentant support for homosexual acts will lead to eternal peril, but repentance to the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so though every statement in the pamphlet could easily be proven to be true, and the religious statements, supposedly protected by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, consistent with the Bible, were, were clearly stated, and the concluding message in the pamphlet was that God loves you. No matter what your sin is, no matter what you've fallen into, God loves you. He wants to save you. In spite of all of that, Bill was arrested and could spend up to two years in prison for willful promotion of hatred. Now, having said all of that, that's happening right now today in our nation. I am fully aware that this morning, I am walking on the same ground that Bill did. No, I'm not at a, at a pride parade. I'm in a pretty safe place. But nonetheless, it's the same ground because we're dealing with the same issue. And if someone wanted to make an example of me, they could easily accuse me of inciting hatred and throw the hate speech law at me. So I want to just say at the outset that what I'm going to say this morning is not motivated by hatred. It's actually motivated out of love. Because God deeply loves people caught in the sin of homosexuality. And I do too. God loves them. God desires to free them. And so do I. And so while we're going to be heading through some heavy subject matter, remember this is not about judgment or finger pointing. It is about giving a clear, loving, and sober warning. And then pointing people to Jesus for redemption. Because last time I checked, it doesn't matter what the sin is. It is only in Jesus Christ that any sinner yours truly included, any sinner can find pardon, forgiveness, and hope is in Jesus. He's the only way. But the key ingredient in all of this is, in order to find freedom and forgiveness, we must fully acknowledge what sin is, what sin is, so that we can repent of that sin and turn to Christ. And so today, I want to just point out to you that in case you weren't aware in the spiritual realm, Satan is waging a full-on battle within the church in an attempt to remove the label of sin from homosexuality. The bottom line being that if the church says that homosexuality is no longer a sin, then there's no longer a need to repent of it and no need to turn to Jesus. So just in case you've pulled a Rip Van Winkle 
and you have fallen asleep for 50 years and you just woke up and you don't have any clue of what I'm talking about right now, first let me just say to you, welcome here. Good to have you. Is everyone awake? You're, you're good? Okay. We'll keep going. But second, if you just woke up after 50 years and you're, you know, you're still, your head spinning, I hate to inform you, but over the last 50 years, Satan has been doing some stuff in the Western culture and in our nation of Canada. And he's not only been waging this campaign step by step, systematically, waging a war against marriage, waging a war against God's design for sexuality, but he's been winning. He's been winning. His agenda has been moving forward. And it's at the point now where the final battle lines are being drawn within the church itself. Culture has already completely waved the white flag. But the final battle line is in the church. And right now, in countless churches, including in many Mennonite churches, right here in the so-called Bible Belt of Manitoba, in places like Winkler and Steinbach and in Winnipeg, this battle is being waged and many are waving the white flag. Just this past week, talking about this, Henry Friesen, he gave me an article from the Canadian Mennonite magazine. And it was an article submitted by Pastor Steve Hepner. And he gives a very strong word of warning against the direction that he sees the Mennonite denomination going. And here's what Hepner wrote, quote, The Lord's patience is running out with Mennonites over the issue of homosexuality. I fully understand that this will be a difficult, if not impossible, message to receive for many. But because I believe so strongly that this is a message from God, I am willing to expose myself to ridicule, if not outright wrath, that now awaits all those who dare to call homosexuality what the Bible calls it, sin. Brave words from a pastor within the denomination. So to begin our study, I first want to show you exactly how God feels about homosexuality. This is not my opinion. This is what God has revealed in his word. So that's the first thing I want to just demonstrate for you clearly how God views this, how he feels about it, what he says about it. And then secondly, I want to look back into history and demonstrate that what we are dealing with today in our culture, in our time, is actually not a new issue, but in fact, a very, very old one. It is one that Satan has been using to destructive effect at many points throughout history, and we're going to look at one of the primary examples of that this morning. Just two weeks ago, we talked about spiritual warfare and how we are actively engaged in spiritual warfare against Satan and his forces. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul wrote this, In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. I remember the first time I read that, it just jumped out at me, this idea of Satan has schemes and he's trying to outwit us, and then Paul says, we're not unaware of those schemes. And I thought to myself in that moment, well, I think I kind of am unaware And that got me into thinking, what are his schemes and how can we learn what they are? And so that's part of what I want to be doing this morning. We need to be aware of his schemes in order that we can properly stand our ground and resist him and force him to flee. So in order to set the stage for this wide-scale deception, here is his scheme. um, Satan is always in the business of taking what God has made and trying to subvert it and twist it to his own design. And so there was nothing higher in in God's created order than the design for marriage and sexuality. And so Satan, putting that in his crosshairs, 
He cleverly created the conditions where there is no longer right and wrong, but simply your truth and my truth. Now, this has been called the postmodern era. And the reason is that in the previous era, known as the modern era, science and empirically provable data were king. So whatever could be proven by facts was considered to be the ultimate truth, absolute truth. And therefore, if you could prove something to be true, then therefore that meant everything else was false. But now in the postmodern era, facts have been surpassed by feelings. Let me give you an example. Two men had an argument. And to settle the matter, they went before a judge for arbitration. The plaintiff made his case, and he was very eloquent and persuasive in his reasoning. And when he finished, the judge nodded in approval and said to the plaintiff, that's right, that's right. On hearing this, the defendant immediately jumped up and said, wait a second, judge, you haven't even heard my side of the case yet. And so the judge said, oh, of course, yes, please state your case. And so the defendant was was also equally persuasive and eloquent in defending himself. When he was finished, the judge looked at him, nodded his approval and said, "Mm -hmm, that's right, that's right. Well, when the, the clerk of the court heard this, he jumped up and said, but judge, they can't both be right. You have to make a ruling. And at that, the judge looked at the clerk. He said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right, that's right. This story, though humorous, illustrates the absurdity of postmodern thought. We feel as though we can look at any opinion, no matter how contradictory they may be to one another, nod our heads and say, that's right, that's right, even though they are in direct contrast to one another, in direct conflict. Absolute truth, provable facts, and right and wrong no longer apply. It's just your truth and my truth, and who cares if they contradict each other? So you can say the grass is green, I can say the grass is pink, and hey, everyone wins, we both get to be right. And so... My feelings on something override whatever facts you may present me with. So if I feel that God is all right with people practicing homosexuality, if I feel that the loving thing to do is to condone it, if I feel, then it doesn't actually matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter that the Bible says otherwise because my feelings have surpassed any other evidence. And yet, we believe and we know that this overrides our feelings because there is a right and a wrong, that truth is absolute, and that the ultimate source of it begins and ends with God. So we must turn to his word and look for ourselves. So I want you to take your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Now here in Genesis chapter 19, to give you a little bit of context, this is the first clear description of homosexual activity in Scripture, but also in all of ancient literature. Any literature that the world has has accumulated over time, this is the very first mention of homosexual activity. Now, this is, of course, the famous story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The text has experienced tremendous controversy over its interpretation, and the reason being that it's the most widely known text dealing directly with this issue. the the, The setting of the story is that In chapter 18, God has just informed Abraham that the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah had become so wicked, so vile, that he is going to destroy them. However, because of Abraham's nephew Lot, and he is, of course, moved to Sodom, Abraham begs God to show mercy for their sake. 
And so then a little bit of back and forth, they get down to this, this low number of righteous people he would need to find in order to spare the city. And so he, the Lord sends the two angels to investigate the city to see if there's anyone living in there that was worth sparing. And so we pick up the story in Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the city square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and enter his house. Now it is immediately apparent that Lot knows how wicked his city had become. Lot knows what would happen to these two men if they had spent the night in the city square. The text also gives no indication that Lot knew or suspected at this initial meeting that these men were angels. It's apparent from the text that he just believes these are two strangers coming through town and he feels that it's his obligation to protect these men by bringing them into his home. And so Lot was just doing his best to, to provide protection and a safe haven for these men from having something happen to them, which must at this point have become a common occurrence in the city. But obviously, someone in this exchange had noticed these men come into town and to enter into Lot's home. And we read in verse 4 that this, whoever this was put the word out. Verse 4, Before they lay down, the men of the city... Both young and old, all the people from every quarter came and surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Now it appears to us in reading this, the the text is extremely straightforward. The intent of the crowd seems clear and obvious. What also seems clear is God's condemnation and subsequent fiery judgment on them for their wicked actions. But there are many, especially within certain circles of Christian higher education, who have attempted to reinterpret and to soften this text in order to make the practice of homosexuality biblically acceptable. And their argument is that the sin of the men of Sodom was not, in fact, homosexuality. It was inhospitality. And their argument goes along these lines. The Hebrew word yada which is translated in most English Bibles as relations or sex, that word yada, can also in other contexts be used in the sense of becoming acquainted with someone as someone would be acquainted with a close friend. And so the argument goes that the men were so angry with Lot because he was depriving them of the opportunity to get to know these men as friends. However, there are immediately obvious flaws With this argument. First, there are ten additional occasions in the Old Testament where that same word yada is used directly to describe sexual relations between a man and a woman, which resulted in a child being conceived. Second, if the intent of the men of Sodom was simply to get to know these men, then why did Lot beg them in verses 7 and 8 not to do this wicked thing? and then proceeded to offer his two daughters to them instead. Now, this is probably the most extreme part of this story. And as a father, as as any dad, you'd be like, like, what was in his mind that he would offer his two daughters instead of these strangers and just giving them up? 
But you'll notice in the next line, it says, these men have come under the protection of my house. And you have to understand Middle Eastern culture to understand that that is sacred. Even to this very day, in Middle Eastern culture, when you say, come into my house, you are saying, I provide you not only food and drink and water and a place to rest your head, I am giving you my protection. And and that's a very real thing, that even in that culture, you go to a place like Afghanistan today, if you have been brought into someone's house, you could be a mortal enemy. But they would not dare strike you down in their own home or allow someone else to strike you down in their house because you you have given them your protection. And if you break that, that is sacred. You would never, ever do that. And so here Lot is saying, they have come under my roof, they have come under my protection, this is my sacred vow and duty, I will not relinquish it. And he's so sad on this that yes, he does something that seems so extreme to us to say, take my daughters instead. But in this we see the extreme nature of this circumstance. This was no friendly get-together of like, we want to get to know these guys. This was something very, very direct very aggressive, and yes, the threat of violence was very real. As we read in the text, they were pressing around the house. They were pressing against Lot to the point of where he has to finally just get behind his door, bar the door, and now they're beginning to threaten to knock it down, which is the third argument against this. They want to get to know them because why would they want to know them so badly that they're going to knock Lot's door down? This finally forces the angels to exercise their powers, and they strike the crowd with blindness. And fourthly, elsewhere in the Bible, we read many references to Sodom as a cautionary tale. And in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 50, God says this about Sodom. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Now, that Hebrew term, Eba, translated in English as abomination, is almost exclusively referring to sexual sins and perversions. This term, abomination, sexual sins and perversions. It is the same exact word that is used in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, which explicitly states, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, of course, While the specific judgment prescribed here for ancient Israel on the sin of of homosexuality clearly no longer applies for today, as we no longer live under the Mosaic law, but under Christ's new covenant of grace, what it still underlines for us is just how seriously God views the perverting of his originally intended design for all sexual relations. God calls homosexuality an abomination, and make no mistake, it is one of the principal reasons for why he did rain fiery judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the next argument is, why are we allowed to cherry-pick this one sin from Leviticus and not others from the Mosaic Law? For instance, what foods we're allowed to eat or not eat. Well, the reason being that certain laws, such as dietary restrictions, were given for specific reasons. And many of them are later explained in the New Testament as to why they no longer apply under the new covenant. However, the New Testament explicitly and clearly affirms that God's view towards homosexuality as expressed in the Old Testament has not changed in the New Testament. Romans 1, verse 26 and 27 are a clear confirmation of that. The Apostle Paul writes, 
Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So here we see throughout Scripture it's consistent. No matter how much scholars and and people try to slice and dice the Bible to make it say something, something different, the Word of God is crystal clear. Homosexuality is a perversion of God's original plan for marriage and sexuality. Therefore, to actively engage in this practice is sin. And just so we're perfectly clear, what is God's design for sexual intimacy? His design is clear, that it happen exclusively and solely between one man and one woman in the lifelong union of marriage for the sealing, enjoyment, and sustaining of the one flesh marriage union and for the procreation of children to be born, nurtured, raised in the knowledge and fear of the Lord, who will grow up to go on and repeat the cycle all over again. That is God's design, period. But now, what about the person who has been caught up in this particular sin? How are we to respond to them? And for this, we look to Jesus' example. In Jesus, we see an example, not necessarily one that we would immediately expect. He definitely was not what the Pharisees expected. The Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, caught in another sexual sin, actively, in fact, caught in the sin. Perhaps it was a setup. We know the story well. They drag her before Jesus. They're ready to stone her in the public square. And Jesus looks at this woman who's clearly been caught in a sexual sin. The law says... Yes, she can be stoned to death. And Jesus says to the crowd, You who are without sin, cast the first rock. And one by one they leave. And finally, the woman is left alone before Jesus. Yes, she's a sinner. Yes, she was caught in a sexual sin. She's aware of it. And before him, all alone, Jesus says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. So to be like Jesus, to follow his example, we do not point the fingers of condemnation, but neither do we condone the sin. Jesus did not condemn her, but he did not say, go and continue in your life of sin. No, he said, leave your life of sin. And so to be like Jesus, we do the same. We love people enough to tell them the truth. That sin is sin, but then we love them enough to point them to Jesus who is the only one who can forgive them of their sin, provide them healing, and give them what their hearts so truly need and desire, an intimate and personal relationship with him. Because in Jesus, there is hope for those caught in the sin of homosexuality. There is hope just as there is for anyone else caught in any other sin. Because Jesus bled and died and rose again for every sin, including this one. The answer is the same. The healing is not a process, but a person, Jesus. And in Jesus, Romans 8 verse 1 states, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And so while God has not given us the job to judge or condemn people caught in this sin or any other, 
God has given us the job of telling them the truth and pointing them to Jesus where they might find mercy and grace. And yes, sometimes doing that requires that we have to tell people what they don't want to hear. And they might even accuse you of being unloving or being hateful for doing so. But the highest form of love is loving people enough to tell them the truth with the hope of saving them from the path that leads to destruction. There's a true story that exemplifies this fact. May 26, 2002, a towboat on the Arkansas River in Oklahoma accidentally pushed a barge into a concrete bridge support. The bridge was where Interstate 40 crossed the river, and at the impact, a third of the bridge collapsed. But the problem was that the people driving down the Interstate 40 were coming at such an angle that they couldn't see that the bridge was out until it was too late. And so fishermen in boats below watched in horror as car after car shot off the edge of the bridge at 70 miles per hour, plunging 62 feet into the river below. Three 18-wheelers went over as well, along with seven passenger cars, including one carrying James and Misty Johnson and their three-year-old daughter, Shay. The fishermen immediately began pulling the survivors out of the water as fast as they could. But meanwhile, as they're pulling people out of the water, more cars kept shooting over the edge because no one was up above to warn them. When the fishermen pulled a truck driver from the water, he shouted at them, Somebody stop those cars! And so finally, a fisherman, he grabbed a flare gun. He scrambled up the steep embankment to the interstate above. He made it there just as another semi was barreling towards the edge and directly towards him. And so with the semi bearing down on him, oblivious to the danger ahead, he had no time to flag this semi down. And so raising the flare gun, he aimed it directly at the windshield of the semi and fired. The flare bounced off the windshield. The driver slammed on the brakes. The the semi came to a screeching halt, the wheels locking up the truck stopping with the cab hanging off the edge of the bridge. The driver managed to throw it back in reverse, pulled away from the edge, and effectively blocked the road, forcing all the other cars behind to stop and averting further disaster. And still 14 people died that day, including three-year-old Shay and her parents. But how many more would have died if the fishermen hadn't done what it took to stop that semi and block the highway. My friends, we have the absolute truth of the word of God. From it, we know that if people continue to live in rebellion to God and his ways, they will, at some point, inevitably go off the edge to destruction. But God has put the flare gun in our hand. He has put the light in our hand. The truth And we can go out and share the good news about Jesus. No, it won't be easy. Not everyone will receive the message. And yes, you will be misunderstood. Yes, there will be those who charge you with hate speech. But if like those fishermen, we can help pull people out of the river or go further still, keep them from going off the edge in the first place, isn't that worth it? I believe that it is. I believe that it's worth it, and I believe that God will bless all those who have the courage to stand firm, and to more than stand firm, actively speak the truth in love, and let God do the rest. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we stand on your word and your authority, we are standing on firm ground. You have given us a firm place to stand. And in you and by your grace, you will hold us firm. And so, Father, as we look at the way our culture is going, our world is going, we see the way the enemy has been using these tactics of of teaching people that there is no right and wrong, that, that we can all have contradictory truths and nothing matters anymore. Lord, your word says otherwise, and we hold to your word, because your word is true. Your word is absolutely true. And so, Lord, we, we just pray that, first of all, that you would give us the grace, the mercy, and the boldness to stand firm. And then, second of all, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have your heart towards those who are caught in this sin as any other sin. That we would not point the fingers of condemnation, but that instead we would lovingly speak the truth and point to you, Jesus, as the only way, the truth in the life, the only one who can meet the deepest longings of the heart, the only one who can forgive sin and freely pardon. And so, Father, give us the grace, give us the wisdom, give us the boldness to do this. And Lord, we pray for those who have been directly affected by this, that you will just give them mercy, grace, endurance, and patience to not give up, to not lose hope, but to know that in you there is always hope and there is always a way back home. And so, Father, we pray for this mercy according to your great love for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.